Hello, I'm Jeff Innocent and welcome to Smart Casual. Now, apologies if you're here thinking it's a podcast about fashion. The title actually refers to my on-stage sartorial elegance and hopefully describes the conversational style of this podcast, which is talking about smart things in a casual kind of way. So it's my privilege to have as my very first guest, American comedian Russell Hicks. Now, Russell is a very rare talent indeed and has a unique improvisational approach to stand-up comedy. We had a great time talking about a range of subjects. So what it was like for him growing up in a small town on the west coast of America, why he decided to move to England, about making artistic choices as a comedian and his improvisational process. And of course, what it was like coming back to stand-up after a succession of lockdowns. This episode was recorded back in the summer of 2021, just as the world was coming back to some level of normality. I hope you enjoy it. This is the right area for you to do a podcast. Dawson, which is similar to Brixton, is probably a very good comparison. It's one of those places that... Um, the, it's a Windrush place in the, the first generation of Caribbean immigrants settled in places like here, Dawson, Hackney, Brixton. And uh, because it's still got a street market, it's mm. still retained its original features. Whereas once they start gentrifying a place, they just completely ruin it. Yeah. So whilst it's still got that street market and that doesn't get gentrified, the place has still got Well, yeah, because I used to live here. Oh, I and, didn't know that. Yeah, I lived around here when I first moved here for a little bit. And someone told me, they said, Dalston was like Stab City. They said that that was Well, before there was stabbing, rough. we had stabbing here. Before there oh, was a yeah. craze of stabbing. And shooting and stabbing and, and stuff. But that station, Dalston, I don't know what exit you came from, Kingsland. but the, the other side, that's where the Four Aces nightclub used to be. So I used to go there to rave on a Saturday night, a big reggae club. Yeah. They've knocked that down, and now that, that that's the station. But once the market stays, then the place is good. It's down that end. This end's getting a little bit a little bit trendy now. Yeah. It happens everywhere, doesn't it? Yeah. It's still rough around the doesn't edges. doesn't happen in Rochester, though, does it? Uh, I don't know. Like, it does a little bit. There's, like, there's a pretty trendy high street. It's a nice... Rochester's all right, you Well, know? there's some beautiful architecture and, and buildings there. Yeah. Done gigs there in the castle. How, how have you found yourself in Rochester? Because I just didn't want to pay... Because the London rent was too much. And sure. then, like, it's like 37 minutes on the train or something, and yeah, I just put two really and two cool. together. Well, so I was like... So that, was, by the way, I do phrases like that a lot now. I've no, what's Someone that? pointed that out to me <laughs> that I do that a lot, that I talk well, like... Uh, like 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 a businessman in the oh, like well, I you, go you. so I put two and two together yeah <laughs> so hey you know, I I don't know someone pointed that out and now I can't stop hearing that I I do that a lot I go I I said oh, I was on the phone to someone the other day and I said I'm gonna tell you that so I can tell you this right you so rationalized like, phrases like yeah. that like yeah um, I'm just loaded with like uh, I think it's all the 80s movies I watched or something I was thinking about Rochester because it's got a castle. And I wonder, because I was thinking about you looking at where you're from and everything and about mm. how some aspects of America and American people are almost fetishized by, by 
by British people. Some are not. So West Coast, surfing and all that, you know, New York. And I wonder if you've got a thing like that for England, you know, a castle, there's a castle. If you get that that American thing about British yeah. history while you're in Rochester, does it occur? Do you think they've got a castle? Yeah, there? I Is do. That- and I was thinking about that recently, the the strangeness of that word. The people be like, you're an Anglophile. And mm-hmm. I guess I was. But sure. when I think about that, it doesn't that just sound... It's just yeah. weird, isn't it? Like, now yeah. that I'm here, I'm like, what was I, yeah, <laughs> what yeah, was I so yeah. obsessed about? Uh, I mean, it's great, but I, I say when I was living in America, yeah, I did sort of look to this country with a sort of uh, a, a curiosity. Like, I was like, I don't know. I just wanted to get over there. I wanted sure. to be. So when I m- first moved here, I tell people this all the time, like, the, a castle I mean, to an America, especially in a yeah, California, yeah, is I even mean. a yeah. new part of America. Sure. Like, I think, you know, that's been said, but the oldest building we have is like, it'll be like a Target that's like, oh, that's been there since the 70s. Yeah. So to see a castle is still, to me, I'm like, that's that's insane. And, and obviously no one gives a shit and like... They're desperately trying to get people, you know, three quid just to take a tour. And like, oh, fuck that. People, people piss on it and stuff. You know, you come, you be walking down the high street and you see people drunk just <laughs> pissing on these beautiful yeah. landmarks. But because uh, I think that you know these, uh, what's that program where they go into the shop with old stuff? The American program, uh, like a pawn shop. I don't know what yeah. it's called, and they take stuff in. And it's funny when you're English because they take stuff in and they go, "This is a uh, two hundred years old." They go, "Wow, man." You know, and it's like a pistol or some something like that. They've got no medieval stuff. Well, they killed right. all that off, didn't they? Yeah, but, yeah. But not you. But also, I'm thinking that where you're from, and I want to talk about that in a minute because it intrigues me. I think that's. I, I think when English audiences boo Americans on stage, half jokingly, yeah. I don't think they mean California or the West Coast, and I don't think they mean New York. I think they mean that middle bit. Yeah. You know. Yeah, so Idaho. No, or, or for sure. Yeah. So I had to kind of, I like when you when you leave America as an American. It's I always likened it to being like, it's like you've started high school, and your older brother went there, but he was an asshole, mm-hmm. and he picked on everybody, and you have to just kind of be like, look, man. Like, that was my brother. I don't know what to tell you, you know, like... Uh, oh, what, you mean like the teachers are going, oh, no, not another uh, Just hit. everybody's yeah. like, oh, here's this guy. And you're like, look, I don't, you know... Like, when I first started coming over here, you get, you know, a lot of that. They'd be like, uh, I, I never... I think as a Californian, you don't even really identify or what you know that's like a popular thing to say now but you don't really resonate it's like i'm an american i mean i am for sure i didn't realize mm-hmm. how much until you leave your country how much it's in your blood just the way i act and stuff i'm like mm-hmm. yeah like i just have a, a general confidence about me that you know i never noticed until i lived mm-hmm. here and like but yeah i think i point that out to them i'm like i'm from california like this is not it's a big state mm-hmm. you know it's a big uh country so i think sometimes yeah they can kind of assume that you're from the stereotypical middle of bit, course yeah but, you yeah know. so you do do that can can i talk more specifically about where you are from sure i have to tell you i tried to do research on you really are you are you in a witness protection program because I couldn't, you know, you're, you're, uh, <laughs> there's nothing about this guy. I yeah. couldn't find anything about you. And what I wondered if you were in the mafia. What you... a devastating blow to my career status well, right well, out no, of the I gate. Mean no, because the only guy that comes up, <laughs> according to Google, 
I was an actor who died in 1957. <laughs> it's true. There's this guy who was in a bunch of Shirley Temple movies. All right, so there the is a Russell Hicks that, that comes before yeah, you. Yeah, he pops up, but I'm slowly knocking that guy off his perch. Well, I, I just thought there's nothing, and 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 I, I haven't worked with you that much. I was reflecting on that, so actually, I don't haven't worked a lot with you, and I don't remember you being on stage talking about yourself or where you're from or your backstory. Mm. It doesn't. I don't know if that is part of your act at any point, but it doesn't seem to be. So I had to dig deep, and I thought, there's nothing about this guy. And I, I did think that maybe you were in, in witness protection, maybe a mafia hitman, um, but you'd probably be called Russell the German, you know, because you've got blue eyes and, and blonde yeah. hair they like to, or the, the crouch, you know how the mafia give you immediately. So I found out where I think you're from. So can you... Oh, also on your website, Russell, there's some great stuff about you. And for those people that don't know, and I don't want to embarrass you here, I love what it says about you. I think it sums you up. And on your website, I don't know if this is a review or, or if you wrote this or if your your people wrote this, but for those people that don't know Russell that are listening to this, I'm not from a comedy background, he's, he's anarchic, unbridled and unfiltered. He is a risk-taking comic whirlwind captivating audiences everywhere with his razor-sharp wit. Fair enough. From the moment he steps on stage, crowds are hooked by his infectiously rebellious personality and unapologetic style as he delivers entirely original comedy content right there in front of your eyes, indisputably talented. There's no comic quite like... Russell Hicks, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. Russell Hicks. You know, that, that, that doesn't embarrass me as much as it used to. Yeah, that that yeah. kind of stuff used to really cringe, make me cringe. Oh, yeah, I used to be like, that's and why I said I hope like, this doesn't yeah, embarrass you. Nah. But yeah, Martin, that's I'm fair like, enough. Yeah, that's I've just the way it is. That's, so that's on, the your, biz. on that's your website, the biz. there's no information about you apart from your comic stylings, but there mm. are a lot of photographs, Russell. I'm not, this is not a criticism. And a lot of you look, kind of, you're quite good looking for a comedian, aren't you? It's not, mm. I don't think comedians are usually cute or good looking or pretty in any way but you seem to there's a lot of pictures on your website it could be a dating app website no. there's a lot of pictures of you looking good man yeah but here's the thing those are the second <laughs> round yeah but well i mean you're looking good as tony law said to me once after and no <laughs> nothing against tony this is a while ago after not doing well on stage and then sitting in a booth in front of the audience shirtless as he said to me once, he looked me around the eye and said, I'm sexy. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing that I'm you get hit on a lot by, by people during gigs, after gigs, which is something I've never experienced. Uh, if I'm in the right pub in hey. the, uh, out in Kent, the hey. cougars uh, <laughs> come up licking their paws. No, I, here's the thing. Those photos, though, those are the second round of photos. I took a first round of photos when I got with my new agency. Mm -hmm. And we went to this really, like, like, plush sort of uh you know photo studio mm -hmm. and the guy did not get me at all and i came in wearing my clothes you know clothes my sort of uh whatever i am trying to put out there my my kind of like 80s my whole outfit cost less than a dollar you know sort of look i've got going and i was like this is me man this is what i want to do so i was encouraged no 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 just wear some nice smart clothes Man, these photos, I had to say, we got to do a recall on these. Okay. The guy at one point, and I, I, I can't even believe I'm going to admit this, because I said, this dude 
slowly started to get me to unbutton my shirt. <laughs> These are comedy <laughs> photos. Nothing against yeah. this guy, but he goes, he was doing that classic thing. He was coming over there and going, hey, why don't you loosen up, loosen up. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, unbutton. And I, I mean- there may or not be a shirt, a photo of my. my They're sexy, man. They're sexy. But bitches. I said we can't do that. I said, listen, we need to. This is not me. This is like I. This is if you think those are dating profile. I mean, these other ones were just. I said I can't live with these. So then, what we, you mean? This is this is not those ones you're no, talking about. Wow. The, this is so. Then I said, I uh, thank you for bringing me into this studio, but let's just. Uh, I got the guy who runs uh, up the creek, um, UTC Gelly. I said Gelly. Let's just go to Peckham in the offices where they work. Mm -hmm. I'll bring my real clothes. Let's just take some photos, man. And that's what those are the ones we used. Okay. And the other ones, I mean, I'll send them to you if you want. But. No, no, I've got enough are already. You sure? <laughs> I've downloaded enough already, Russell. So anyway, that image, that image, I was thinking this, this, your, I'm guessing this is as its roots in where you're from, the West Coast. I yeah. put you down as a sort of surfer type reefer smoking vw van type guy is that in any way accurate at all when you're a teenager yeah it's yeah. a pretty cool stereotype to be burned with i, I wouldn't i never that. surfed because i'm too like lazy i could never okay. get up that early but skating smoking weed okay up to a certain age and i think you've got that on stage that persona comes across almost immediately mm. now have i got this right it's it's ramona yeah Are you how did you ramona? find that yeah Hey man, I'm, you know, I've got a criminal That's a background. pretty deep cut for someone who says there was nothing on the internet. Well, it wasn't, but I found, I just found wow. out stuff about you, man. Uh, which is 40 minutes drive away from San Diego. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Now, what I like about Ramona, for those people, it's, a, it's a, such a cool name as well, isn't it? Uh, you know, uh, Dennis Hopper's from San Diego, Whoopi Goldberg, Robert Duval. That's not a bad lineup, man. Did not know that. Um, and, and I'm always into how much one's environment determines their act. But knowing you even as much as I do, it, I can see why you would want to leave a place. Totally. That, that, I mean, like, yeah, I, I, from a very young age, like I remember telling my girlfriend recently, I said, at some point in my teen, when I was a teenager, I said, uh, like, I, I have to get as far away from here as possible. Just, I don't know why. That's mm -hmm. just how I gauged, like, I don't know, say success, but I just gauged sort of some kind of fulfillment as, like, I couldn't, I think I was reaching about 19 or 20, and I was driving past the same places mm -hmm. that I had been seeing since I was 13, and I just thought, I can't do this when I'm sure. four. I've got to get out of here. And so, I think... England and Europe and all that represented the furthest I could possibly fathom from that environment. So that was kind of how it and, happened. And were you doing comedy then? Did you start your comedy life there in, in Ramona or San Diego? I did stand-up once when I was 13 years old. And what's funny about that is that I, I did it. My mom booked it in at a, at a county fair. And I said, okay, don't tell anybody. And she told the, the whole town, right? And it's like a very small town, so everybody's there. And I was like, okay, I've got this coming up, you know, I better get ready. And uh, I didn't prepare. And so I, the night before I got my family together and I just did this like improvised, I basically did crowd work on my dad. I just ripped my dad to shreds and I crushed obviously because it's my family. So I walk into the gig the next day, like this is gonna kill. <laughs> I start doing the same stuff. 
Hey, you know when my dad's walking it fucking died. <laughs> Sorry to I don't know if we can swear, but I ate it so bad and it was like I remember one of my an an adult, I'm 13. I remember an adult heckled me. Like do something funny. And uh and I just remember thinking, like, now that I look back on that, I'm like, you're a grown man. Yeah. <laughs> you were a grown man. Like, and to this day, I I don't get any, I've never got any of that kind of, like, let, oh, be nice. Like, they just kind of, they'll, I don't know, because wherever I'm at, you know, I like, maybe you said I appear confident, so there's no sympathy, you know, sure. like, so they, they attack me or whatever. But I just remember, like, I, I dealt with the heckler, got the biggest laugh on that, and sometimes I think about it, and I'm like, my act has not really changed. So you started in the style that you, you use now. Yeah, uh, but I didn't do stand-up again for 13 years. I didn't do it till I was 26. And where were you when you, you did that when you were 26? Where did you start? Where did you start then? Doing yeah, comedy? I had moved to San Diego properly. Okay. I, I went to the 40, the 40 minutes away, you know, uh, I mean, and then I just, I started down there and I just remember I was do, I was in bands at the time. I was really just kicking around the dive bars. I was drinking and I remember I just said, all right, this New Year's, I'm going to try, like, I'm going to start three new things, and stand-up was one of them. And then as soon as I started stand-up, it was pretty obvious that, you know, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. And then the bands just stopped, and that was it. I took off. So you uh, could do it straight away, more or less. Yeah, I, so as soon as I, I remember I started, and I said, okay, I'll do it, like, four times a week. You know, I tried to do some, mm -hmm. and then it was obvious within the first two weeks, like, if you want to get good at this, especially because I felt I was starting later, I thought I got to do this every night. Mm. And I did it every single night. And the relationship I was in naturally exploded because there's no, there's no, I don't know any relationship that can handle you not being a stand up comedian and then becoming a stand up comic. Oh, wow. Yeah, of course. But it was a good thing. I mean, I remember I met this comic named Rick Shapiro in Hollywood when I moved there later. And he said, uh, because uh, all these things were happening. I was like, dude, I just got, like, I divorced because we were kind of, like, married. Long story. I'm kind of married. We got divorced. I had crashed my car. All these things were just, and I was like, and he said, you're stripping away the layers, man. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> you so know? How, how old are you here at this stage, did you say, when you, what year are we talking about? How old are you when you start taking it up? 26, 2010. And there's a circuit for you there in San Diego, or is it when you get to Hollywood, you, there's a circuit for, for stand-up comedians? No, there was a great circuit in San Diego. Okay. Um, there was like three or four clubs and then a bunch of open mics. And, you know, I just remember just immediately kind of immersing myself in it and, uh, um, yeah, getting, you know, get it, like getting absorbed in it pretty quickly. <laughs> So your the style your we'll get onto your creative process a bit in a moment if you don't mind but that style your 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 particular style that's something you started with it's not something I mean obviously it's developed but it's what made you go in that direction what made you not look who were the influences that you were you who were you seeing as stand up comedians what made you take that yeah well that, that direction what I like about that is when I started I really didn't have a concept of live comedy I had never really gone I went maybe once I didn't really know guys did that I didn't know that was a thing just come out and improvise with the audience so I started out really structured I had jokes and I was listening to at the time Bill Hicks Patton Oswalt I was living with this guy who was a incredible pop culture junkie so he actually started me off 
he saved me a lot of time because rather than just be listening to what was popular at the time, I was listening to all this great stuff like Bill Hicks, Lenny Bruce, all these like deep cuts. And I remember, uh, yeah, for about a year I did that. I did, just did about just very structured, very, but people would heckle me all the time. And that was how it started to come out because that started to become, I was very, uh, on edge as well. I was very angry. Remember what you were talking about, what, what topics interested you, well, what you were taking on, was it just regular stuff? Like yeah, I was, it was like, uh, it was probably a little bit more, you know, like dirty, but it was a bit, I, I just remember, um, you know, at the time, it was like we were just coming off the Bush era, so it was still like you make fun of, like, the South and the rednecky types of Americans, you know. I had a couple of good bits. I had one that was like, people in Texas only speak in slogans. That was the thing. I forget how it went, but it was like, uh, oh, why'd you, why'd, why'd you vote for George Bush? And they'd be like, uh, because these colors don't run. What do you mean? Because I'm an army of one. What? Because it's your way right away and then do McDonald's slogans. I don't know, shit like that. And uh, and and I remember I had a few, like, but I just never, it never, like, felt the gig would take off when somebody would heckle me. I remember I went back to America and someone, this was so weird, I went back, like, four years ago and and they had, I was at, I went to an old open mic and they had this, like, um, notebook behind the bar and I was like, what is that? They were all joking, like, it's just there. And then they were like, oh, somebody left this here years ago. And we just look at it and we just laugh at it. It was mine. And I looked at it and I opened it up and it was just, I can see why they laughed about it. Because, you know, you just write these one word things. And it just, I had one, one, one thing just said penis. And there was four stars next to it. Like, this is a, like, <laughs> pen, whatever penis was, that was daddy's closer. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, so did it, did it gradually develop through different heckles or did one day you say, right, from now on, I'm not going to come in with constructed material. I'm going to play, I'm going to improvise. Did it, was it an overnight thing or was it a gradual progression? How you got to that? It was gradual because I was so... I was so anxious on stage. I was a really angry performer at the time. Like, it could go, you know, there's that video of Bill Hicks getting heckled. That was, like, my whole act for a while. I would just get so, I was so nervous to be up there. And so if somebody was heckling throughout the night, I remember I would show up to clubs, and they would they would send me in. Like, you ever see that movie Slapshot, like the Hanson brothers? They'd be like, like, they'd send me in like an enforcer, and I would I would go in just to deal with this heckler. Wow. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it went terribly wrong because you don't go on stage. And then I would go on stage and go, where is that guy? Right. And then just go for it. And people, like, sometimes would be like, all right, like, you know, he's, he didn't do anything yet. Uh and that's how it developed. I just started to think, man, this is a lot. So were you earning a living from being a stand-up comedian before you came to the UK? Uh, Yeah, I was grifting, though, big time. You know, like, I was on the grift. I was like, uh, it was like, I think right before I left Hollywood, or to go to Hollywood, I had I was working the day job at a comedy club, which was not work. I went in at noon to five. The phone rang once, and that was it. It was great. And then I could, I think I was like getting like 
I was probably getting unemployment. So I was, and then I, and then I could get like a hundred quid a week at this mm-hmm. club. So I was grifting it. And then when I got to LA, I started getting colleges. That was actually pretty good. I got paid to go to, to, uh, universities. And so that's what made it come into the UK was like, I thought I had shot myself in the foot. You, you got paid to go to university to study. You mean? No, or, to or do stand up. Okay. Like, I got that right before I left. I was doing that for, like, six so months. So did you choose to come to the UK for comedy purposes? Yeah. Or, okay. And wh- 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 what year are we talking about? Where was the UK then? What was going on? Was there still the genre circuit? Was there... Yeah. It was early. It was, like, 2013 I came over here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, it, it had changed. I mean, genres had really seen its best days then. But you were, but you were still able to earn a living as soon as you got here? Or yeah. So what I would do, I would do the colleges, then come over here, and I had no connections over here, so I would work over here until the money ran out, or I would try to get ahead. I wasn't getting paid yet. Then I'd go back, do some more colleges, and back and back again. And I remember when I got here, yeah, everyone was like, well, the circuit's on the way down. And mm-hmm. I was like, isn't that just the way? Yeah. Why is it every time I show up, <laughs> they're like, oh, <laughs> the the party just left. <laughs> I was like, so... So what was what was the major difference for you then with audiences and the comedy culture that you, you left behind in L.A. to when you came to London? Yeah. Was there a major difference in not amount of work, but audiences' responses, how comedy savvy they were, what sort of stuff they liked? Were you struck by any major differences? Yeah, or- like, I mean, I think the biggest issue is, like, when you first come over here, you doubt yourself, so you're now you're acting weird up there. And so you start bombing and then it can be a whole because when you get here, you don't know either. It's intimidating. And you do feel that little, you know, like you said, sometimes they'll boo Americans. Now, I know now that's a friendly little British jab in the nose. Yeah. You know, just they just want to see how you move. Don't react to that. You're dead now. Mm-hmm. If you take offense and get indignant about like, oh, oh, my God, they love that more. That's more fun. They do, they're okay with the gig going well, but if they can ruin an American, oh, that's just a, what a night. So, like, don't do And I've seen Americans do that. So, I don't know. The difference is, yeah, was probably, like, it can get a little rowdy. Like, British audiences in America have a real reputation for being really rowdy. And I'm like, that's true in some rooms, but not always. Mm-hmm. The junglers thing was... Uh, was an experience like no other. I mean, I actually feel a little bit privileged that I got to play some of those rooms because they were so brutal sometimes. Uh, yeah, they were. You know? Were. Yeah. Uh, but the circuit's better here. It's a healthy circuit. Uh, yeah, it's, it's incredible. a lot better. I think it dipped for a while and then lots of independent clubs came back and there's as much work. And seldom now do I go to a club where the audience look like they're going to be difficult in any way or drunk or heckly. I don't... Whenever that happens, I think, oh, yeah, this, I've forgotten about this stuff. Yeah. Of course, all those years at Jongles hold you in good stead for that. Now, can I talk about uh, your creative process? Because what intrigues me is it's so different to mine. And you do things that I can't do. So... We both go about our comedy in completely different ways. There's a small quote here, Russell Hicks. I don't know if I've misread this. Russell Hicks attempts to make a work that is forever in progress. 
by walking on stage, we literally get a fist of ideas. Now, you've been to Edinburgh almost every year since you've been here. Am I right in thinking that? Uh, yeah, but I stopped going maybe the last two, three years. before, Even before lockdown, I didn't go. So. And is there a particular attraction for you because of your style of comedy, which is based on improvisation, that long-form, longer shows? Is that a particular attraction? Do you enter into that with a different agenda to you do when you're comparing shows and you're, you're doing what you do in 10-minute bite-sized portions? Do you enter into those shows differently? Do you actually even have a structure or a construct or a framework? Or do you just give it a title and, and improvise for an hour and see I just want to say, first of all, I just want to con- um, say that I'm really proud of you for talking to me, acting interested when I can see you're looking at uh, you're looking at me just going, this young punk. This no, no, little, no, no, no. This I can't little do, punk. Listen, I've been doing comedy for nearly 25 years. And we comedians walk on stage with no script and cold call an audience and spark it up. I just think I can't do that. I could never do that. I can write material that looks as if I'm doing that. Yeah. That's probably what I'm clever at, that it looks as if I'm genuinely interacting. So I... um, No, I just mean you're so well-respected, and when I came over here, I was... uh, respected you immediately because I had heard of you, and I just... It's just interesting that you are... Sort of like respecting you, in, interview, respect, interviewing man. me. Hey, you, you know, it's be like here, it's man. interesting. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm in like little like a nappy talking to you. You know, <laughs> I'm like, what, what, I'm like, what do you want to know? I'm embarrassed like, by that, but thank no, you. No, but anyway, so um, <laughs> oh, but you, but the thing you. is, man, I can't do what you do, and I spent a lot of time wishing I could do that, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 a lot of people when I say to them like. You know, especially Edinburgh. So when I was in America, Edinburgh to me, I thought it was this magical, like, completely free artistic compound. Not that it doesn't have pockets of that, but I was a little shocked when I got here to realize it's a trade show. It is an industry. It is corporate. It is money, baby. And I was like, oh. So when I went in for the Edinburgh newcomer, I always look at that was the year that Alex Edelman won it. And I look at our two, we're two Americans, and we couldn't have been more opposite in how we approached it. He was almost like my parallel universe where he knew exactly what to do, you know? And I'm not knocking him. I'm saying he has a good head on his shoulders. He knew how to do a debut hour. He knew the rules. He knew the thing. He knew the blah. I came, I came in. When I look at that first Edinburgh show I did, I mean, if you purposely wanted to not get industry attention, that's the show to do. It was, and I'm not bitter or anything. I'm just saying I had no idea. I I did a completely improvised hour in the Tron at like midnight. You know, you're supposed to come over and do a structured show at 8 p.m. in the Pleasance. And, you know, that... That was just how I did it, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, I I don't there. I, if I go in with a plan or anything, um, it quickly goes out the window. Okay, but but I mean, does it give you does it give you more opportunity? An hour gives you must give you more opportunities to play. Because whenever I've seen you, what I think you do, it seems to me that so you improvise. You're an improvisational comic. Um, you're not a surrealist as such. I'm not saying you don't have flights of fancy. I haven't seen you very much. But it's your relationship with the audience is quite unique 
in that the audience seem to be part of your show, you know, maybe like an orchestra, maybe you're conducting an orchestra. Do you, is that what you look for when you see an audience? Do characters become part of the story that you're, you're weaving for the whole show? Is that, is that what you like to do? Is that your, your, your plan, even though you're improvising? Is that your basic structure that you like to play with? Yeah. People in the audience become part of your, your show. Never, I've never seen you actually put anyone down, even if they're slightly hostile, you'll find a way of incorporating them into the show in a, yeah. in a positive way. So nobody's ever the victim of your stuff. Yeah, because that comes back to the, when I used to do the heckle thing, I, that doesn't work. And I realized that was the problem. I would be too mean to them and it would get a bit, it would put the audience off. Mm -hmm. And so I realized not only is it the best way to deal with a heckler, but it, it translated into, I could do it with other people is be positive with them. So I started to do this thing where like, if someone heckled me viciously, I would spin it around to make it some, I'd say, that's what I like about you, sir. You say whatever's on your mind. You got no regards for my feelings. Mm -hmm. The fact that I'm, see how it's already going somewhere. And it was like, the crowd would laugh. And then he would kind of laugh because you're building them up, which guys like that like anyway. Even if you're mocking them, they sort of still like sure. that you're calling, you're making sure. them this fake alpha. And then you build them up a little bit and you build a little credibility. You can also really knock them hard if you need to. But I noticed that that build up thing worked with other people. And when I would get on stage, some people say, do you look at who you're going to before you go on? No, the opposite. If I, if I do that, it'll come out weird. So... The What I noticed as well, because I started to think, oh, I don't want to like, I wouldn't want someone to be at a show and think, oh, gosh, I didn't want that to happen. So the people who want to be part of it seem to be the ones who pop out to me when I'm up there. It's bizarre. I don't know. They, they, they just, they're the ones that I'm drawn to. Mm -hmm. So the more introverted people don't really have to worry because you're not, it's I not going to be you. And I then understand. those, those people, the four or five that do get it, they're happy. Because they're kind of that way anyway, and then and then yeah, that's and just you, how it goes. Is it? I'm not saying it's a bit like plates on sticks, but you like to keep them. Do you go back to them? Do they become part of the whole evening, or do you finish with people and move on, or does it become almost like a a tapestry? You're weaving this tapestry like a like a play, and they're all they're all characters in the play that you're 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 creating for that, for yeah. that show. Yeah, that's it. And then after I love a while, that. and love after that. after a while, that became. So then I started to think a lot about that and like then I noticed I was working on this like different I wasn't working on material anymore. I would get off stage and think, okay, how did I how do I build that thing more? And then I would go on stage the next time and rather than think I'm going to work on this joke, I would try to develop these relationships with people and push that farther mm -hmm. and farther. And and think and work on things like okay, I called back to that too many times. That's a bit too much, you know. Like, I was always very interested in how far I could take it. Like, could you really? Could you do an hour and just have it be this? Like you said, like a play. Mm -hmm. I think someone said called it peopling the stage, where you're bringing them up. And I also wanted the audience to be like, I could do it if they were, you know, like cops. How they have those paper targets pop up like in the beginning of point break because I don't want to rely on their stuff. I try not to, I give myself a little demerit if I ask them like, 
what do you do? I don't want to be like that. But, I want to extract <laughs> everything, you know? But as you just said before, you're careful not to be shooting the woman with the child, but shooting the terrorist. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Unlike Dirty Harry. <laughs> right. I love that. So um, the big question for me, do you think that on one hand, uh, well, there's loads. Of, I've got lots of questions here. Um, on one hand, audiences marvel at improvisation and ad-libs. Uh but I wonder if at the same time it's undervalued in that they think that it's not actual comedy. There's a contradiction here. Even the term crowd work, the term crowd work sometimes undervalues and undermines what is actually improvisation that's going on. Um, and I wonder if uh, people think that you're not actually doing comedy, that you're just a guy doing crowd work. Is that, does that ever occur to you or is it, has that ever come to you that idea? Does anyone ever say that, hey, maybe you should do real comedy? Do you think it ever gets undervalued? And the other question connected to that is, do you, is there a trade-off with improvisation in that there might be things you would like to talk about, there might be you know, profound political positions you want to take or comments you want to make? Do you find that the technique of improvisation, there's a trade-off between technique and speed of thought with ideas that may need more consideration in a writing process yeah the first thing people have said that to me since i started the and i always hated the term crowd work i hate that term i loathe that term it's because like a I, mainstream it's term a, isn't it it's, it's like a pejorative warm them up before we actually do real comedy well because it suggests that it's another it's a pejorative it's mm. the same as riffing I used and people once people once other comics I remember back in LA they found out I didn't like it naturally they would always say it to me you know oh good riffing you know a little I remember one guy in Edinburgh didn't know I don't like that and he said to me and this is just like this is one of those little gems that just stay stuck in your craw he goes how's your little riffing show going Ooh. I mean <laughs> right oh oh good evening <laughs> How's your little riffing show? I'll tell you what, I'm shadow boxing to that once a month, Jeff, to this day. But, all right, so, yeah, I would get that all the time. But you know what was weird? They would say that as I would keep progressing, and I just thought that that's been going on forever. Like, I remember people three years in saying, you like, some older guys, headliners would say, uh, you'll never get anywhere with that. As I then got a little further... You'll never get anywhere that get a little further. And eventually I just thought, well, you know, it's like what it's like what Richard Pryor said to Eddie Murphy when Bill Cosby told Eddie Murphy, you need to stop swearing. Richard Pryor said, do they laugh when you say that stuff? And Eddie said, yeah. And he said, well, then fuck them. I mean, what's the so I just kept doing it. But my 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 view is that audiences may undervalue your improvisation because they think that other comedians are improvising as well. They seem to think so. Sometimes people will say, "What do you do? Do you do you make it up as you go along?" So there are people in modern comedy audiences who think that most of the acts are improvising anyway. So I wonder if they think that your improvisation is not as good as theirs because they've been well, resting on those same improvisations yeah. for ten years. <laughs> well, that's um, interesting because I never thought that, but John Gordillo told me that like three years ago. He listened. He just said, "I don't think that they know what you're doing." And I was like, like that, that never occurred to me because he had listened to a set I did in Edinburgh 
and he said, I'm not, I'm not totally, he said he, li- he liked it and it was funny. But he said, I, I don't totally know that they always know that that's what's well, going that's exactly on. And I was I like, mean, that's a good compliment. Yeah. But I, yeah. I also just never really, I thought, really? <laughs> you know? It reminds me of, like, I saw, I saw Ross Noble at the, do his, like, musical. He was in a musical. I was so embarrassed that I said this. But you know how they have the live band play? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was watching the whole musical, and he took me upstairs in the back to show me where the band played. And I said, oh, I thought that was a recording. I just remember he looked at me and went, really? I just remember that really. like, But that's how I feel about people not getting the improv. Uh, and um, so I don't know, you know. Um, I mean, I have had people, that it, it cuts both ways. It's like, you know, I've had people come up to me afterward, and even if you have a killer 20, they go, I can't wait to see your set. Yeah, there's something yeah. I'd go. Oh, that would always because that's an insecurity for sure. I don't know any comic. I know a few comics who improvise like that. You know, that's just a lingering thing that you think you don't have an act, mm-hmm. and so even you just crushed it, and someone goes, "Oh man, too bad." They'll say something like, "Too bad you didn't get to do your joke or something." Well, of course, I go, there are the lots act. of people that compare that that do crowd work rather than improvisation and uh, right. don't have an act really, and that's. They're bluffing it with that. But you're not doing that, of course. But I, I also wondered if... I'm trying to think of comics that I've worked with that you would say... I don't think I've worked with many comedians that are totally improvisational. Uh, maybe Ross, of course, but he's much more of a surrealist, I think, uh, with his improvisations. Uh, Dave Johns used to used to like to improvise a lot. I don't know if you know Dave Johns. Well, that's interesting, because he's Ross's cousin or uncle. Right, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. But I'm, I can't think of many you get some that look as if they're doing it but they're not really doing it it's it's the same they're taking the same route as they took in the the last gig you saw um and i'm wondering if if you sometimes are influenced even on a subconscious level by improvisation that goes on outside of comedy you know like in music for example or is it because, oh yeah because i i certainly often listen the other day i was listening to carol king and and admiring the economy of her words and how how quickly she gets to the point of her songs. I'm thinking that's just what I aim to do with my stand-up comedy, to get to the point so quickly, like poetry, where you're saying as much as you can with a less amount of words. And I wondered if you sometimes, you know, listen to John Coltrane or whoever and just watch the way they improvise on themes and think about what you do in comedy totally absolutely i love all those guys ornette coleman john coltrane there's a guy and but obviously this because it's me i have to dig deep 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 until i eventually got to guys like albert eiler who just make noise and i also like uh uh another musician john cage okay do you know Mm -hmm. yeah john cage now i remember this was uh this was a big influence on me i was like this is when i was early again uh you know, and, and, and taking influence from other mediums is like, if a comic isn't doing that, they're doing themselves a disservice. I get most influence from other mediums and translate it back to stand-up. But I remember I was insecure about the fact that I didn't have an act, you know, because it was a constant battle for me. Like, I would do well, but I would just think, especially in Los Angeles, there's pressure. to you got to have your seven minutes, and you do that, and maybe you get on a talk show. And, and like you said... Nobody knew. They want to know who you are. You know, I would get off stage and they'd say, but who are who are you? And I was like, I don't I don't know. I'm funny. That's all I know. I don't want to tell you where I'm from. But 
so I was insecure about it. And I remember I saw this guy talk about John Cage did a recording. You can buy this on iTunes. He walks up to the piano in a concert hall. He opens the piano. And he just sits there. And it's silence. It's four minutes of dead silence. And you can buy it. And I remember that the guy was saying, is this art? And his argument was, yes, it is. Because you're not buying the technical ability. You're buying the guts and the balls that it took to just sit there. That's the inspiration. And so that sort of recharged me again for another couple years. I thought, yeah, like it doesn't matter if I'm actually saying anything that's what i'm into i like the the expression of it the the fact that that's the fact that you do it you know um so that yeah just taking influence from other artists is like stuff like that or jackson pollock i like that kind of thing too you look at jackson pollock people are like that's a mess but it's it's not about the you know some some comedians really get off on the technical ability of like like for some reason the like jerry seinfeld guys like that who i think are great they are subconsciously considered the real comedians. Like, the, the tighter you are, the most... Like, Michael McIntyre would be, like, the top of the mountain because it's observational, it's mm-hmm. clean, it's tight. And although I, uh, I absolutely appreciate it, and I think it's great, I'm not one of those guys that thinks that's, the, that's it. That's the only way. You know, that's a real comedian and well, anything else. I mean, is yeah, and, and also, yeah, so it's back to this thing about the trade off between technique and content as well, isn't it? Form and content in that uh, McIntyre or, or Jerry Steinfeld, technically you can see that skill, but what are they saying also? Are they saying anything with that skill or are they delivering what's their content? I like that, that, uh, that tension between those things and trying to find that right balance because. We're talking about art, but of course we're entertainers. So we're taking something that's an art form, but delivering it as entertainment. I mean, as soon as you decide to go on stage with your comedy ideas, you're already you're already uh, compromising to some extent, aren't you? Otherwise, you'd stay at home with your art. Yeah. So we are in the entertainment business, and I do like to make people laugh. I mean, that is my prime objective. Obviously, it's how you make them laugh what's what's underneath the joke what's the ideology of your jokes but uh i do you still like making people laugh don't you You yeah that's 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 the the job you know there is moments where you're like this is the job like i mean i've had few like i think we did like a corporate or something was like me and some other comedians and like you do it was tough but we went in we did the job and we got out and i thought you know sometimes i look at moments like that i'm like that wow that is like we're that's professional that's doing the professional comedian thing that's really i don't know sometimes i i like i get tickled by that i'm like you we, know, we, I'm like, well. we yeah, really I just do. did the yeah. job there you know that was like the job like it was not easy we did our thing and and we got out of there now of course what what differentiates stand-up comedy from acting for example is the breaking of the fourth wall which which as an improvisational comic you live or die by breaking the fourth wall, by not going out with the script, you know. Um, so there's a lot of risk in that. So when you, but are you now at a stage where you've been working in this way for so long, you know what you're doing in the way that I know what I'm doing. I never go out thinking it's about how good it can be, not not that it 
might fail. But because I know that I've got stuff that works anyway, how do you, you know, what's the risk element for you when you walk out with nothing? Yeah, so... Is that what turns you on as well? Well, I was walking, I was at a, doing a gig yesterday in London, and I was walking down the street, and that kind of hit me. Now, I am actually at a point now where I don't, the lockdown was interesting because it's sort of like made you come face to face with this identity that you have for yourself where, you know, we, nobody was anything at that point. You know, we were like, I'm a live comedian. Well, no, you're not. Mm -hmm. You're a, you, you know, you, you garden now or something, mm -hmm. you know? And, and it was interesting because it's sort of like gave me enough time away from it to be like, when I first started out, I was really experimental. Like I said, I didn't know. I didn't say I'm the crowd work guy. I'm the improv guy. I would do anything. I'm, I'm kind of getting back to that. Like I went on stage with a bunch of ideas and I improvised, but it was not on the crowd. It was in that. And I think I've made some reconciliation with the idea that I'm almost okay as well with, let's say I have some showcase coming up, do 10 minutes and I probably, I might do material for that. Do you know? Cause I've developed some stuff and, uh, I don't know. I don't even feel like I'm locking so how does that myself work for in. You, the, you know? the, the break, because for me, it, it, well, it's, for me, what? How does that work for you with your style, or have you used material since you've been back more? Because for me, also this thing about you not being anybody, I laughed to myself because when I was a stand-up comedian before the lockdown, being a sixty-five-year-old guy that wears clothes that a thirty-year-old guy would wear, maybe yeah. doesn't matter because hey, he's a comedian. He's like the guy in a band. But when halfway through, I thought, I'm just a 65-year-old guy wearing clothes that are too young for me. I'm not even a comedian or in a <laughs> band anymore. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense. But the when I'm even coming back now, coming back, refamiliarizing myself with what I do, most of it has been about remembering material that I've already got yeah. to perform. I haven't even got to the stage where I'm thinking, well, that's behind me. I'm now thinking about how I perform it, being in the room, yeah. being in the moment. Um where the material is just my scaffold that I can lean off, move around. But you're actually, your act is all about being in the moment. So yeah. what's your comeback been like so far? Well, like I remember Billy Connolly said this about when he goes on stage. He says before he goes on stage, especially if he's had a long break, he can't remember anything. He's in the back. He's in the wings telling his wife, well, I don't, what's my act? And then he says, he takes a couple steps on stage, and as he starts to get to the mic, it just starts going, it just starts coming back to him. It's the same thing for me. It's like I will be on stage thinking I literally have nothing to say, and then once I'm back, things start flooding back to me that surprise me. I'm like, oh, yeah, I kind of do that. I do that. Oh, it's weird. It's like it's all up there. I sort of liken stand-up to especially new comedians, they think about it so much off stage, And I always tell them, this is totally irrelevant what you're doing mm -hmm. because standup is like a boxing match. You can think about it all you want, but when you're up there, it's all going out the window anyway. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to think about it except for when you're doing it. And then don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. Just be in it because you're learning. You, there's no, you can't plot. Well, at least I can't. You can't be off stage going, "I'll do that next time," because then you get up there, it of it's a whole different ball game. You're not going, "Oh, I better throw this punch now." Yeah. It's like, no, <laughs> you just—it's a totally different thing. And sure. so I, my whole thing is, don't think about it at all. But I was yesterday walking, and I actually had this realization. I went, "Oh, I get it now." Like, 
you are about to go on stage. You really have no idea what you're going to say. And you just know you're going to be fine. That is weird. Mm -hmm. You know, because other comedians would say that to me. But uh, naturally, because it's you and we all have, like, ridiculous self-esteem, there's not a second I could possibly think, like, you know, like, they would go, that's crazy that you do that, you know? Like, and I would just, yeah, whatever. But then yesterday it did kind of hit me. I was like, that is that is a little weird, isn't it? That that's kind of a. I was I get just a glimmer of a like a recognition for my. It was it was a bizarre moment to be honest. I I wasn't like oh you're so great, but I just thought, I guess that is weird. Like in a way that I, I just I don't know. It, it's almost like I know slash don't really care. Someone said that to me today. They said, "What do you do if a joke bombs?" It's like, you just recover. Like there's no, there's really no way out. There's no. I don't know. I'm not afraid of it keep of having to keep deconstructing it cuz you just keep deconstructing it. And I've definitely been there on stage where it just goes down, down, down. The secret there of course is don't fight it, you know. Just relax. Mm -hmm. And then you'll you'll find a way out. Something's going to happen. Mm -hmm. What what could pop you just well, going to fall yeah, down. Yeah, it's a great lesson because particularly people that are learning, I you know, I run some workshops and uh you, you show them a lot of stuff and they said, no, well, what I want you to do is forget all this stuff, you know. But but you, you, if you're on a workshop, if you want to be a stand-up comedian, there's got to be something funny about you. And sometimes you've just got to trust, which you do at all times. But even I have to remind myself, sometimes just trust that you're funny and let it go and see what comes up in my moments of improvisation. And and that's true. Yeah, you can't. You can't it's just how I'm funny, though. I mean, when I look back at my life, I'm like, I can't tell a story. Doing an interview like this, this is a real exercise for me because this is talking. You get a real raconteur in here. Oh, they do a great podcast. I'm like, okay, I'm enjoying this. I'm having a good time. But when I do a podcast, I think, oh, this is really stressing some muscles because okay. you're talking, you're telling stories, you're being. I'm not the guy around the campfire. I was the guy in the cubicle sitting next to you, just making stupid shit up about people around us. Mm -hmm. Little improvised moments, and it was like three years in before I realized, oh, yeah, that's how I've always been funny. I've never been like, oh, Russell's got a great story. Oh, oh, Russell, tell that joke. It was like the teacher just did something. I'm making it up right now in the moment. It's on that, you know, there's a, there's a target. So um, I guess what I'm saying is, like, it's just how I work. And uh, I think someone – I think there's been a few people who they they – misconstrued it as like an arrogance or something that like oh this guy's just gonna okay. like this gunslinger's just gonna walk on with one bullet in his, and his and it's like no i would love to have mountains of men i there's been times where i've like do you know how much easier my trajectory would have been if i was just a guy who did observational material that's why i think mcintyre gets so much enmity is that that is his natural style and it also happens to be commercial. Mm -hmm. And I think people, comics can't handle that. It's like not fair mm -hmm. that that's his natural voice and it's the most commercially viable. Uh, but that's just the way it is, you know? So it's like, uh, for me, I'm like, dude, trust me. I'm not going up there with nothing because I think I'm trying to show you I'm Bruce Lee. It's, that's the way I survive. If I don't do it mm -hmm. that way, it's going to be fucking gruesome. <laughs> Thank you.
So are there, do you have, you see, I don't have, and maybe because I started very late, I was 41 really when I was doing gigs, when I started doing gigs, I've never really had a career ambition. I've never called it a career. Probably had intellectual ambition and always striving to be better at what I do or not quite doing it in the way I'd like to do it. So I'm always working on it. What about you in the career sense? What, what does that mean? Have you got, you know, I don't see you on panel shows. I haven't seen you on yeah on panel shows or is that is that part of your agenda or are you just happy mm. to be working on your art and see what happens or you leave that to your agent to worry about where yeah well what's going to be happening with you so i've often thought about this like if someone asked me how do you go you know do stand up or whatever i would say okay i don't know the answer to that but i'll tell you how i did it mm -hmm. you spend five years just completely absorbed in the create the, the artistic side of it. You know, I always I always thought to me it seemed like there was always two types of people. There were those who wanted to be great and there were those who wanted to be big. And I always wanted to be great. If I got big as a side effect of being great, well, you know, that's that's mm -hmm. fine. But some people would look at like say Chris Rock in an old special and I look at Chris Rock and watch that and think wow he is an amazing master other people would be like wow look at the size of that venue you know and those are the different mindsets but after so many years of the artistic side of it which does get you far being funny you know what like I never take for granted the fact that it's funny guys like you and me I think because we're not as out there on the, you know, uh, certain like the TV shows and stuff like that, they people might think uh, they that we have almost a secret living. I know you do great. I do great. I'm like, look, I know you think just because you haven't seen me on TV, but dude, I'm this. I make a living at this, mm -hmm. and it's freaking awesome. I've known people on TV who have. You know, and look, there's nothing wrong with having a day job, but it is bizarre. I've seen people in profile positions who are not, they don't maybe work in the circuit or they're still kind of doing a little side hustle. And I'm like, I'd, I'd rather, I'll take this then, you know? I mean, sure. and I think what, what I'm saying is that like, uh, that, that little missing piece though, I, I, I've realized, and I think the lockdown helped me with this. It really did is like I was talking about limitations. I've realized where I have probably actively limited myself. And maybe there is a little bit of, um, there, there is a, a certain hubris and like arrogance in that, that I just assume if I get so good and I don't play by your rules at all, well, you'll just come to me then. And I mean that. <laughs> well, I think that seldom happens. There, there aren't many comedians that have managed to create their own pathway through uh, uh, maybe Ross is the only one I can think of. Well, yeah, but even he, when I talked to him, man, I thought, wow, this guy, first of all, he is so generous with his time. That guy has sat down with me for hours, you know, to the point that I've said, I mean, yeah, look, I mean, yeah, I think you should probably be a little bit more frugal with your scheduling. This is crazy. You just met me. But I remember talking to him and I was like, that guy has switched on. You know, he had the artistic side down, but he also very early on knew I want to tour. I want to set up my own audience. But I think 
what what's been great in the last like year or two is that those barriers have come down in my mind. I don't know if it's because I'm getting older, but now I realize what a weight that was, this sort of purity. Like you talk about being into these jazz musicians. That's what I mean about being into Albert Eiler. I always have to find the guy who didn't play by the rules and died on a toilet. You know, that's that. And it's like, I, get that. I, I get remember that. I, Tom Ward said, me and Tom Ward had a, had a deal with each other. We said, okay, look, dude, the problem with us is that our bedrooms always had posters of musicians who who were obscure and died in a basement. So I said, you go home, you're going to order a Kevin Hart poster, and we're going to put that in our kitchen. And that's going to be our new, you know, because we need that in our life. But I think what's happened, what I'm saying is in the last, like, two years, that's all come down, and I've realized where I've limited myself, and I've just thought, just, yeah, why not? So now... You know, just like when I was on the open mics and I thought to get to the clubs, you have to actively start making moves to get to the clubs. People are always like, how do I get to the open mics to the clubs? And I'm like, well, I, what I did is I literally just started going to comedy clubs. I would go to the comedy clubs, even if I wasn't on, I would just be there. Just just because I thought I'll be around people who are on clubs, maybe it'll happen. And eventually it did. It's the same way with TV and other things. I think in the last two years, I just went like, like I said, back to that first Edinburgh you know how like Alex kind of knew what to do, and and I I think that uh, I never uh, tried really because you, you might be the same way like you try to get good as a comedian and you do get good and you do get the benefits of that, but other things like TV fame and all that mm -hmm. that's a different try and all it is is I just realized like I've never tried at that mm -hmm. so I started putting a little more energy into that so we'll see what happens but okay cool but i mean i don't i just mean it was but even that was an artistic decision because i can't make any decision without like it i somehow that was still that was i started to notice it was stifling me a little bit or creatively and so that was the the final route to where i went oh i should you know because like you said, if you're on the junglers thing and you felt like you were creatively stifled, you actually might see getting on television or getting to a different position as a create as a way to be around uh, to open up creatively. To wind up, really, what what people who have listened to you here who want to go and see you live, you're on the circuit everywhere. They can go online and find out where you are. Mm. Of course weekly doing live gigs so like to, 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 just to tack on to that okay. long diatribe like yeah i'm on like online now TikTok, okay. putting videos on so something like that two years ago i'd have been like i'm not gonna put videos online i'm gonna put videos on TikTok, and it's like i just look at it now and i'm like okay yeah intellectually is TikTok something i would spend a lot of time on no but why why would you i just look back and i think why would you not put your stuff out like these are the mediums put it out so like i don't know that was kind of a big deal for me it was funny that it it's funny that it took me that 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 was such a big deal for me to be like yeah i'm putting stuff on these social media platforms whereas like it feels like everybody else just uh like that's not even a that, that they wouldn't sure. even think twice about that you know well yeah i i, I by chance i had a viral video which uh, even every day now, every day, someone comes, even with the mask. Yesterday, I went off to Essex, got to the train station. Excuse me, can you tell me where you can get? Hey, you're the guy. You're the guy off the video. That's great. This is happening daily, weekly, 
just a video that was put out there. Um, so that's how that. Yeah, stuff I, works. I think that comes back to that. Like I've always seen us as the lifestyle is what I always wanted. So it was hard for me to like once I got the lifestyle, I was like, this is great. But and I learned this from all those circuit comics that I would see at junglers and stuff, man. Some of those guys bought houses. They did certain things, and I thought these guys are smart, man. They they kept the grift going. And so that's all part of it. Mm. Like, why not do a viral video? It's only going to extend mm. the journey, you know? Russell Hicks, man. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, man. It. I did enjoy that. This podcast was hosted by me, Jeff Innocent. It was produced and edited by Sam Piconi. Don't forget to like and subscribe and follow me on social media at Jeff Innocent Official on Instagram and Innocent Jeff on Twitter. See you next time for another episode of Smart Casual.